The Perils of Pauline, Chapter Four by Charles Goddard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Four Owen Wins the First Game. Harry Marvin entered the little private garage back of the Marvin mansion, locked the door, and drew the shades of the small windows. There were only two automobiles in the garage. One was the big six-cylinder touring car in which Pauline and Owen had made their trip the day before to the aviation field. The other was the two-seated runabout that Harry had driven over the same ground just behind them. Having made sure that nobody was about, Harry lifted the hood of the touring car and without the slightest provocation, attacked it with a wrench. He removed the carburetor, took it to pieces, lifted out the hollow metal float, and deliberately made two punctures in it. Then he tossed the dismembered parts upon a workbench, and was about to operate on the runabout when he heard voices outside. He was barely in time to unlock the door, and be found busily working on the car when Pauline entered. She had just learned of the chauffeur's absence. Harry volunteered the additional bad news that the big car was out of order. Like every disappointed woman, she insisted on knowing exactly what was wrong. Harry told her, with many long, technical details, and not knowing at all what he was talking about, she had to be satisfied. Could he fix it in time to get her to the aviation field before the race? Well, that depended partly on whether she would go away and not bother him until breakfast. Pauline could, and she certainly would, refrain from bothering him. Never before had Harry found her a bother, nor, for that matter, had any other man in her recollection. Out she went, and with more color than usual in her pink cheeks, and the light of battle in her eyes. By George, I've got to play my cards carefully thought Harry, as he contemplated the runabout. It was evident that he had designs on the health of the two-seater also, but he felt the necessity of subtlety in this case. He could not assassinate it boldly by tearing out a vital organ, as he had done to the bigger car. This runabout must die a slow, lingering death. How was he to do it? His first idea was to weaken the tires and invite blowouts on the road. But this could not be done with certainty, and some kind friend might supply him with new tires. A more promising idea was to drain the engine of its oil, knowing that sooner or later the pistons would run dry and stick. Such a proceeding would ruin the engine, and Harry was too good a mechanic to spoil a first-rate engine, especially one built by his father. He would as soon think of hamstringing a faithful horse. A better plan soon came to him and put him into action. It soon had him flat on his back, under the car, boring a hole in the bottom of the gasoline tank. When the life blood of the car began to trickle out in a stream, he stopped the hole with a small wooden peg. The young man now frowned at the only remaining vehicle which had not received his attention, Owen's motorcycle. 
Harry went to the hose used for washing down the cars and collected a little water in the palm of his hand. With the other hand, he removed the cap from the motorcycle's tank and allowed two or three drops of water to mingle with the gasoline. This done, Harry let down his sleeves, washed his hands, and sauntered in to breakfast with the unwelcome announcement that the big car was, for the day at least, beyond human aid. There was a flicker of suspicion in Owen's sallow face at the news. He wondered if Harry had disabled the touring car, that he might ride alone with Pauline. "'I'm afraid that you'll have to ride in the runabout with me, Polly,' said Harry quietly. "'It's rather hard on Raymond, but I guess he'll have to go by motorcycle or by train.' "'Oh, I think you wrecked it on purpose,' said Pauline, without the slightest suspicion that she was stating the truth. Owen, worried by vague misgivings about Harry, looked into the tank of the runabout to make sure that it was full, and then scurried away on his two-wheeled mount. He considered waiting until the runabout was ready to start, and keeping the machine in sight, but it seemed wiser to be on the field where he could make sure the Frenchman would not forget his bargain, nor start before Pauline arrived. Pauline was ready with such record-breaking suddenness that it gave her the novel experience of waiting for Harry. She had not forgotten that her lover had asked her not to bother him while he worked on the car. After that slight to her pride, the young lady would rather die than go near the garage while he was in it. During the next five minutes, unpleasant doubts entered her mind. What could this indifference and neglect mean? She had looked upon Harry, ever since his return from college, as a personal possession. Of course, technically, he wasn't hers until she married him. But if he were not her property, at least she had an option on the handsome youth until such time as she saw fit to either take his name or relinquish him to someone else. In that case, she wondered to whom she would like to turn him over. There was her schoolmate and chum, Miss Hamlin. How lucky any man would be to get her, and Harry, how would he feel about it? Then, like a cold draught in her brain, came the recollection that Lucille and Harry had corresponded all the four years he was at college. Could it be that she, Pauline, had been too willful and headstrong with Harry? If so, was it possible that the keen edge of his adoration was wearing dull? Pauline had just succeeded in stamping these unpleasant questions deep down into the subconscious parts of her mind when the young man whisked up in the runabout. Pauline's wrath melted rapidly. Harry drove, as he did everything out in the open air, magnificently. His judgment of distances and openings was precise, and his skill in weaving his way through heavy traffic was startling. A good-looking young man is seldom seen to better advantage, especially by a girl, than when driving a powerful car. Pauline loved to drive with Harry. Besides his spectacular tricks, he had a guileless manner of getting the better of arguments with crossing policemen. Harry was not driving as fast as usual. This fact was impressed on her by shouts and waves of hands from a car which passed them from behind. "'That's Lucille!' 
cried Pauline, waving. Yes, and confound it, that's Billy Madison taking her to the races. Well, why shouldn't he? asked Pauline. Isn't it all right? Yes, but it seems to me he's paying a great deal of attention to Lucille and— Say, Polly, you don't suppose she'd be silly enough to care for him, do you? That sensation of a cold wave in the back of her brain came again. I'm sure I don't know, she replied a little coldly. Why, does it matter very much to you? Harry hesitated, even stammered a little in denying that it did. He stammered, as Pauline well understood, because he was not telling her his true thoughts. It did matter, and she knew it. In reality, it mattered because Harry knew too much about young Madison to want him to win the affection of any friend of his, but Harry did not wish to explain. So Harry does care for Lucille, and always has cared, thought Pauline. The sense of possession of the youth beside her faded, and he seemed far away. If a man fears he is losing his grip on a girl, he redoubles his attentions, and racks his brains to be more interesting and attractive to her. A girl in the same situation reverses the tactics. Just as Harry felt the absolute zero which scientists talk about settling upon him, he remembered a very important duty. Seems to me we don't drift the way we ought to, said Harry, pressing on his clutch pedal and trying to look concerned. I think we have been a long time getting to the aviation field, was Pauline's chilly answer. Harry stopped the car, went back and pulled out the little wooden plug in the gasoline tank. Then away they went, leaving a little wet line in the dust of the road. Pauline stared straight ahead. Harry's attempts at conversation fell on the stony ground of silence, or at best brought forth only the briefest and most colorless answers. Soon Harry's practice ear caught the preliminary warning of waning gasoline, and a moment later, halfway up a gentle hill, with a sob from all its six cylinders, the car gave up the ghost. A few miles ahead, Owen also was in difficulties. He had been sailing along merrily until he stopped at a little roadhouse for a drink. The machine had been all right when he got off, and he knew nobody had touched it. Yet now it acted as if possessed by the evil one. With great difficulty he was able to start it, and once started it coughed, bucked, and showed all the symptoms of bronchitis and pneumonia. By dint of strenuous pedaling, Owen helped the asthmatic motor to the top of the next hill. It ran as smoothly as a watch all the way down the other side, and then imitated a bunch of cannon crackers on the following rise. Owen was a good motorcycle rider, but a very poor mechanic. His machine had been adjusted, cleaned, and kept in repair by the Marvin chauffeur, and the secretary had seldom cause to investigate it on the road. He had always used the carefully filtered gasoline from the garage, so that he neither understood the present alarming symptoms nor knew their cure. His motor was protesting at a drop of water which had entered the needle valve of his carburetor and, being heavier than gasoline, had lodged there and stopped its flow. It would have been an easy matter to drain the carburetor, but instead Owen, with nervous fingers, adjusted everything he could get his hands on 
and after two hours' work, trundled it into a farmhouse and hired the farmer to drive him the short remaining distance to the aviation field. Several machines were in the air, but not the Frenchman's, when the farmer drove up. The roads and the edges of the field were alive with cars and spectators as the secretary hastened to the hangars. The French aviator welcomed Owen and inquired for the mademoiselle. This confirmed Owen's fears that something had happened to her on the way. It had troubled him a little that the runabout had not passed him on the road, but Harry might have made a detour to avoid some section of bad road. Owen lost another hour in watching and worrying before he made up his mind to go to the rescue. There were plenty of idle cars, but it was not easy to hire one, as they were mostly guarded by chauffeurs with no right to rent or lend them. At last a man was found who was willing to pick up ten dollars and take a chance that his master would not know about it. The rescue car found them just where they had stopped, halfway up the hill. Pauline had run the scale of feminine annoyance from silence to sarcasm to tears. The tears produced almost the same effect on Harry's determination to keep Pauline from flying that the drops of water had in Owen's carburetor. The spectacle of the girl he loved, weeping, had almost broken up his resolve when Owen dashed by, shouted, turned around, and drew up alongside. Harry asked for help, and the chauffeur, who had never had the pleasure of tinkering with a Marvin Six, was inclined to dismount and aid at least in diagnosing the car's ailment. While he was thinking about it and surveying the parts which Harry had taken out and strewn about the running board in his pretended trouble hunt, Pauline had dashed away her tears and transferred her pretty self to the new car. Pauline and Owen both knew there was barely time to reach the field before the Frenchman's ascent. So with scanty farewells, Harry was left to reassemble his car. When he had set up the last nut, he replaced the little plug in the tank, produced a can of gasoline from the locker behind the seats, emptied it into his tank, and drove at reckless speed for the aviation grounds. He was just in time to see a tiny speck on the edge of the horizon. This, he learned, was the Frenchman's machine. He was told that it carried a passenger. The speck grew rapidly in size, developed the insect shape of a biplane, and soon seemed to be over the other end of the aviation field. The young man's joy at seeing the aeroplane returning in safety was dampened by a little feeling of shame that by such devious means he had almost spoiled Pauline's pleasure. I act like an old woman worrying Polly this way, he decided. No wonder she's cross with me lately. She must think I would be a tyrant of— Harry's last words were choked by a spasm of the throat. There were shouts and gestures from the spectators. A light gust of wind had struck the aeroplane on the right wing. It wavered an instant, like a dragonfly about to alight, and then, instead of responding to the aviator's levers, turned on its left side and plunged to the ground. A cloud of dust arose— half hiding the wreck, and then the crash of impact came to his ears. There was a second of silence, broken by a groan. 
Harry heard the groan and didn't even know it came from his own throat. He was in motion now, forcing people to the right and left and running down the field. It seemed miles to the other end, and he was gratefully conscious that others nearer were hurrying to the rescue, if rescue it might be called. The aeroplane had dropped like a stone from a height that forbade hope of escape. Would she be conscious? And would he be in time to give and receive a last message of love before her splendid young life was quenched in the black blot of death? Besides grief, there was fury in the runner's heart, wrath against Owen for encouraging this foolish and dangerous caprice, against the unfortunate driver who had failed to preserve his precious freight, and against nature, who condemns every living thing by one means or another to that same final failure and wreck, death. Gasping for breath from his exertions, he was at last within a hundred feet of the ruin, and saw people lifting up the engine and removing a limp figure. Just then, two people stepped in his way. He did not turn out, but rushed straight at them, rather glad to have something to burl aside in his blind anger. Nor did he notice that one was a woman. Harry's plunge carried him between them and knocked both down, just as he had often bowled over the interference in his football games. On his lurch, wondering vaguely at hearing his name called, he heard it again, and it sounded like Pauline's voice. He turned, and it was Pauline. After all, Pauline had arrived too late, had missed that fatal adventure. Owen watched Harry lift Pauline up and wrapped her in his arms with a squeeze that hurt. But it was a hurt she loved, and though she sobbed as if her heart would break, they were sobs of relief and happiness. Owen watched a moment and then slunk away. His schemes had been for nothing. Pauline was alive and happy in her lover's arms, and the secretary was no nearer his goal of permanent control of her estate than before. He walked to the entrance of the tent and tried to learn from the nurses and doctors who were hurrying in and out whether the French aviator would live or die. Nobody would stop to give him a satisfactory answer. There was a flap in the back of the tent, and through this Owen cautiously peered. He saw a nurse with something that looked like wet, absorbent cotton dabbing at a round black object. Presently he saw that the round object was the head of a man blackened by fire. Just then the nurse looked up, saw Owen's guilty face, and gave a little exclamation of dismay. At the same instant Owen felt a hand grasp his elbow. Withdrawing his head from the tent, he turned quickly and was confronted by the red face of Hicks, the blackmailer, counselor, and dream messenger. The secretary backed away from Hicks with a face of terror. Don't be scared, said Hicks in a hoarse whisper. I feel as if I were in this thing as deep as you are. In what thing? asked Owen. Don't bluff, old man, said Hicks. Didn't you dream about me last night? Well, what do my dreams have to do with you? Stop bluffing, replied Hicks. Didn't you see me in a dream last night, 
And didn't I leave a black shining stone on the table when I left? Owen did not deny these questions, and the red-visaged man went on. I see you took my advice, that is, his advice, whoever he is, and you fixed the wire. Look here, Hicks, in heaven's name. Tell me what this means. I did dream about you. You told me to do the thing. And it's your fault. You admit you are in it. Now, what is it? Owen, said Hicks, you and I are a couple of pikers in a big game, bigger than we understand. We hold the cards, but somebody else is playing the hand for us. He is an old guy and a wise one. Four thousand years old, he tells me. And though it scares me out of my boots to think who I am trailing along with, I am going to stick, and you'd better stick too, and let him play out our hand to the end. Who is it? asked Owen, wondering if the morphine had gotten the better of him again, or if Hicks were playing some uncanny deceit on him. I don't know, replied Hicks. He's somebody who has been dead four thousand years, and he wants to have this girl Pauline killed so he can get her back. I suppose he's some kind of ghostly white slaver. It isn't our business what he is as long as he takes care of us. If we'll help him, he'll help us. Well, he didn't manage very well today, objected Owen. He planned all right, rejoined Hicks. The machine fell, and if she'd been in it, she'd have been killed. But the other side played a card. I don't know what the card was, but it took the trick. And she didn't go up in the machine, that's all. But don't worry, we'll have better luck some other time. Owen shook his head. He could make nothing of this battle of unseen forces. It was clear to him that he had grasped at the one big chance to get Pauline's estate and had missed it. He told Hicks so frankly. That's where you're wrong again, insisted Hicks. If that girl had been killed today, it would have been a big blunder. A blunder? queried Owen. Didn't you say that Pauline must be put out of the way before we can get hold of her fortune? Listen, said Hicks, glancing cautiously about. Come over here away from these people. What do you mean by saying that it would have been a big blunder if Pauline had been killed in that flying machine? demanded Owen. Yes, an almighty big blunder. That's what I said, and I can tell you why. We were pretty stupid not to think of it before. Now here's what's got to happen to Miss Pauline. Hicks placed his mouth close to Owen's ear and whispered. End of chapter four. Owen wins the first game.